Hi guys, Rob here, podcast editor for EveryMind. In this episode, Paul is joined by Jamie Broadley, Group Head of Health and Wellbeing at Serco, who takes a deep dive in how he came into his role from achieving a master's in psychology to his professional rugby career. He shares what he's learned and how he's successfully able to implement this into his workplace when it comes to mental health and wellbeing. Is a holistic approach necessary to workplace wellbeing? Jamie answers this question with details on what makes the biggest impact on workplace culture and making staff feel supported. He explains how sharing personal experience, especially from leadership, is a key player in the cultural transformation of an organisation. Paul and Jamie delve deeper into the power of vulnerability and openness at work without blurring the boundaries. If you like this episode, don't forget to share and leave us a five-star review. And if you want to find out more about EveryMind, head over to everymindatwork.com. Enjoy the show. So Jamie, thank you for joining us on the EveryMind podcast today. How are you? My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Really good, thank you. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. We were just talking a little bit before I hit record about January blues, if you want to call that, and Christmas seeming seeming like such a long time ago when it's only the 18th of January. But I'm sure we'll dive into a lot of that um, today in today's conversation. Um, but yeah, no, really, really grateful for, for you taking the time out to join us. And I think as always, it would be good to, to find out a little bit about your current role in Serco and also kind of what got you to the position that you're at now. So I know it's cheesy, but if you can give us a bit of an introduction, that'd be great. Of course. Yeah. So um, I'm currently the group head of health and wellbeing for Circo. So Circo obviously a, a large uh, global organization. We've got four divisions across the world and lots of different business units within there from everything from prisons through to the the bins and where I live, get them by Circo. It's a, it's a really diverse mix of, uh, of contracts. Um, I've been with them for about six months now and joined from the NHS where I've spent around five years in staff wellbeing uh, roles of, of different iterations across a community trust and a mental health trust uh, where I am in Derbyshire. Uh, prior to that, my background's in psychology from an academic point of view and combined that with a bit of, I call it performance sport. There's a bit of professional uh, rugby there, but it's uh, it, not particularly glamorous or particularly uh, uh, exciting stuff. But I, I still really like that blend between um, performance and well-being. That's kind of my my niche and the approach that I bring to uh, to these roles that I'm in there. That's really interesting because, again, you know, a lot of the the work that we do and a lot of what we've seen when it comes to mental health, well-being in the workplace, it falls on the shoulders of HR, right? And and what we tend to find is a lot of, you know, generalizing here, but a lot of HR professionals are kind of thrown in the deep end by the people above them and said, hey, go and figure this well-being and mental health stuff out. So you coming at it from sort of a psychology sort of background, performance background is is very different, right? So how did you, um, especially with the NHS, how, how did that come about? How did you sort of land that role? Yeah, so my kind of origin story, if you like, I was um, I was pursuing a, a psychology career path. So I'd um, I'd done degree, masters, and was working in an assistant psychology uh, role in the NHS, um, which was actually in a a tier three weight management service. So kind of bariatric surgery, working with people severely overweight, diabetes, all of that, um, all of that stuff. And I was attending some mandatory training. I think it was CPR or something like that they were doing. And I was also at that um, period of my life um, playing full-time rugby and balancing those, those two careers. So in order to do that, I'd have to go deep down the kind of optimization, um, kind of quantified self rabbit hole. Um, and that was really front of mind in everything that I was doing. And then whilst I was at that training, these nurses arrived running late. They grabbed some chocolate bars from the vending machine because they hadn't had a chance to have lunch. And just over 
hearing their conversations, the kind of the light bulb went off that cliched moment of thinking all of this stuff that I'm trying to learn for my own benefit and applying in a psychology um, setting. Like we don't turn the the mirror around and look at it ourselves and, and why aren't we prioritizing this from a, um, a staff point of view? And that coincided with a number of other things. The service that I was in, as many NHS services do, went through um, a restructure and the assistant psychology role fell out of it. So I was needing to be creative and looking for, for next steps. Um, and it just so happens that I very fortuitously bumped into a, a really forward thinking HR director um, who is actually now, um, now at the BBC. Um, but was with uh, CAFCAS at the time, which is a social work organisation, and he was looking to bring people in to really kind of give some dedicated resource for uh, staff wellbeing. So, so hugely, uh, hugely lucky to, to make that connection and landed in a more generic HR role um, with CAFCAS, but one of the specific projects around wellbeing. Um, and that was what, nearly 10 years ago now. So my career path has really kind of charted the the rise of corporate well-being I, I suppose and I've, um, I've been looking to be right place right time so I've seen it from when it was fruit bowls yoga classes and ping pong tables and staff rooms through to kind of everything that happened through the pandemic and obviously being in the NHS at that time was um, was very interesting learned a huge amount through to this now I know we can't call it post-pandemic yet but hopefully we're getting there and what the impact of that has been on um, on the the narrative around corporate well-being. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to see roles like yours evolve, right? Because, you know, as I've, I've said, typically it would have fallen on HR shoulders and for a lot of organization it does. But, you know, we work with organizations like Co-op and, and Weights yeah. and, um, you know, other organizations where we'll be working with the likes of someone in your position where it's a, a head of wellbeing role or wellbeing lead, you know, and typically these are, in my experience, roles that are starting to evolve a little bit more now. Um, yeah. And, you know, from from your experience and the work that you do, I mean, one thing I always laugh about is it it still takes more than just one person in one role when it comes to well-being. I mean, yeah, yeah. Would, you, would you agree with that? And what have you sort of seen in, in your day-to-day in terms of, yes, we're making these roles exist now, but it still comes, in my opinion, there's a lot more that we need to be doing, right? Do you agree with that? Completely agree, completely agree, yeah. So... Um, the way that I've seen it is organisations tend to come at this from kind of one of three different ways. So there's the HR route, which is probably the kind of the path most trodden. Then there's the sort of health and safety route. And certainly where I am now in Serco, we've got a really well-established um, health and safety culture because of the type of the work that we do. So that's one area for, for leverage. Um, and then the third is that kind of benefits reward space. And there's certainly lots of um, providers that, that sit in that space too. And I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer as long as we're we're creating these roles and we're getting buy-in from the business and it's not just a, a tick box exercise, but certainly whether it be in the role that I'm in now or, or past um, past organisations, the vast majority of the time is working across different remits, working with other heads of and other leads. So whether that be health and safety, like I mentioned, kind of colleague experience, colleague engagement, um, EDI, obviously a really important space, which is having a, a similar evolution to, to well-being and then really getting into the nitty gritty of, of HR processes. And I know you're incredibly well versed in, in this space. So take absence management, for example, how many different touch points in that are there that have a massive well-being impact? So working with those teams and making sure that all of that's set up to um, to support the well-being of, of the staff. And fundamentally, I believe that if we create good work and we have support in place when things go wrong, if we're dealing with risky um, risky work, 
then people like me can hopefully be kind of made redundant in the long run because we don't need them. It's just part of how we do business. Um, I think that day is a long way away, fortunately for my selfish career <laughs> development. But um, that's definitely the kind of the, the direction I think we need to be pushing. And it's really good to hear that because again, by the sounds of it, it's a very holistic approach, right? You're what you're looking at is you're bringing in different parts of the business and and identifying that it's very much about culture and as you said, the processes and the policies behind everything that happens. And I think, you know, again, generalizing, but a lot of organizations since I've been doing talks and work within this space mm. have have have, as as you said, believed that let's get Paul to do a talk that's going to cure everyone's issues, right? And and I'll do a good job, but I can't change the policies, the company culture, like you say, absence management. So how, how much do you believe in that almost holistic strategy sort of development behind everything that you do? Yeah, it's um, that has to be the the heart of it. And the way that we think about it internally at Circo is there's, there needs to be activity above the line, which is visible to everyone activity below the line, which is the kind of the meaty nitty gritty stuff, which which makes the real impact. So yes, we need to have awareness days and we need to have webinars and we need to have all of that kind of really good, positive, engaging activity. But as you say, those are little moments in time. They might create ripple effects, but those ripple effects, unless you really, really um, do them on mass, aren't going to change a culture, aren't going to change the, the processes which sit behind um, an organisation. That's what people have um, more regular uh, interaction with and that's what, uh, determines their their well-being more so uh, it's definitely around getting into some of those kind of slightly more boring topics slightly less sexy stuff but that's the the heart of it from uh, from where i see it um, and i think that's hopefully something which has started to change um, in the the well-being space as a whole and certainly the pandemic's accelerated some of that we've seen the the stuff we started doing the kind of the cliched fruit bowls banning the biscuits doing some uh, lunchtime walking groups great in isolation but but they don't get us all the way there and we need to start thinking about this in a in a slightly deeper way and um, really focusing on the the individual and their experience and um, in their role one of the challenges that i hear a lot off the back of that is and again you can hopefully shed some light or whether it's in circle or other businesses or other things that you've seen is how do we get that buy-in so you know when you're talking about the the, the the kind of stuff that happens that none of the employees really see the policies the change that takes a lot of other people involved to really buy into that so have you got any tips for anyone who might be listening to this that's like yeah i believe in it i really want to push it but i can't change this policy i can't change that policy is there any tips that you can give or anything that you've seen yeah definitely so kind of immediate thought on that is the I think part one of the traps that well-being's fallen into from a from an organizational point of view is, is being quite paternalistic and being quite prescriptive um, in terms of the the way that we've shaped some of our approaches. Whereas actually, if we want people to truly engage with the service, it's about well, what's in it for me. And to have that kind of selfish um, idea of, well, what, what benefit am I going to get from that? Um, especially in the context of everyone's really busy lives and everything else that's going on for them uh, in current working conditions. So really trying to get that um, from the front line, whether that be through surveys, through focus groups, through all those other means of, um, of, of pulling that information out. I think that has to be a starting point to understand that, well, what do I get from, from this? Yes, I can download an app, but why is that going to benefit me? And, and really selling that. Um, 
and then the again very cliche very cheesy but being the change that we want to see so if we don't have control around the the policies and the processes that doesn't mean that we don't still have things within our um, within our sphere of control and influence so talked about this um, previously but the um, simple things like check-ins at the beginning of um, of meetings that's the best well-being intervention that I've seen through the pandemic because it's a really simple way of getting everyone to just share a little bit of vulnerability and have a conversation about something which isn't directly work-related take the mask off a little bit that can spark a whole myriad of different opportunities for um, either connecting people with well-being support or continuing a conversation beyond the, that engages people in their work uh, in a very different way. So it's really basic little bits like that that often go go missing. But actually, I think that's the the, the heart of it and the place to start. Yeah, it's really good. I think you know when you're looking at what you mentioned at the beginning there, like education, just getting people to understand it differently. You know, one of the things that we really focus on as a as a business is to really get people to change their perspective of what mental health and well-being is, you know, maybe the same as you, you know, I grew up believing mental illness would never impact me and it's this and it's that. And, you know, even the fact of asking the question of, do you have mental health? I would have said no to that question years and years and years ago, but, you know, through my own personal experiences and now understanding of mental health, what I come to realize is the first step is people have to have different education. So, they understand it differently and then they can approach it differently. As you use the example of the app, one of our main products was an app at the beginning of, of, of the existence of the organization. But the key thing that we do for the engagement of that app is I need to run sessions with employees to get them to understand the importance of even spending five minutes on their mental health today um, because I aren't, I'm not programmed like that and a lot of people aren't. So like you say, education is really important. And then I also really agree with, like you say, what's the change that you want to see? because we created a um a champion course and i really believe in champions because you know we've seen some incredible work with organizations that instead of training hundreds and hundreds of mental health first aiders and they stay dormant in a business they've got 30 passionate individuals that are champions and they drive it and the impact that those 30 or 5 or 10 individuals have is far more impactful than you know, just having some names on a, on a sheet, if, if you want to contact them. And, and like you've said, that's, if people really want to make this change, they can. And it's like not waiting for someone above you to make that decision that, that you can make that change. Completely agree. Completely agree. And um, one of the examples of that is I'd often um, have conversations with leaders, um, especially during the kind of the real heat of the pandemic saying, I know my team are struggling, but I just can't get that conversation started. I'll, I'll ask them how they're doing in, in team meetings or the like or one-to-ones and I just won't get anything back. So my immediate question to them was, well, how are you doing? I said, well, yeah, of course I'm struggling too. Um, have you told your team that? Like, no, I couldn't do that. I'm a leader. I need to, I need to show that I'm handling it. Like, well, if you were struggling, would you go and tell someone that seemed to have it all together that you were struggling? No, of course not. There's not that same permission there. So often it's that starting point of saying, this is tough at the minute. I'm struggling. How are you all doing? And obviously, there's there's um, some kind of greater depths to that, and there's more uh, more questions that we can use. But simple little bits like that can just get that conversation going, and then that's where the education piece, the the services, the products, they really can have a, a much greater impact than just pushing those out cold. Yeah, so true. We did um we did a, a we we survey a lot of employees on the sessions that we deliver, and it was staggering that. 
think it was over 10,000 people that we polled around, around that number in the last year. We asked a question about who would you talk to about mental health at work? And this is across different businesses that have got different levels of support, different industries. And it was just shy of 50% of people said no one, no one at work. And, and like stigma outside of the organization is still bad stigma in the organization. I think is even worse because I think as you've just highlighted there, we are afraid of vulnerability in the workplace. You know, I remember, you know, the first job that I had, the first real corporate job, it was the most challenging time. I lost my dad to suicide, big reason of why I started the company. And I remember the guy saying to me, Paul, leave your personal baggage at home. Don't bring it to work with you. You know, so you're very much quickly wired that, okay, (laughs) vulnerability is not needed in the workplace or I can't tell my manager that I'm struggling because I might lose my job or, you know, no one else is struggling. As you said, no one else in my team struggling. So I'm the only one struggling. And I think... That vulnerability piece from a leader, especially when you're working remotely, it encourages people to come to you as well because they then almost in a way trust you a little bit. Have you have you seen that as well? Definitely, yeah. There's um there's that kind of ripple effect um and that kind of positive virtuous cycle that as soon as one person starts having this conversation that all we're doing, like we're social beings, aren't we? We look for for cues around us. And if we're not seeing any of those cues, then we're gonna keep our mask on and we're we're not gonna share. As soon as we see that change a little bit, then we're going to lean into that because ultimately that's what we're we're wanting, isn't it? We've all had our our battles, we've all had our journeys, especially over the past eighteen months, two years. Um, none of us have been immune to that, so we want to talk about that. We want to have an opportunity to feel seen and heard and understood. Um, we're just waiting for that moment, and if we can be the kind of people that create those moments, then it's going to have a, a far-reaching um, a far-reaching impact. And I think one of the you touched there on that kind of work-life balance boundary um that's hopefully something which is has changed as a result with a lot of people um the the phrase that we used was kind of rather than uh, working from home was living at work because that's what it felt like at times didn't it mm-hmm. um and i caveat that by obviously i'm slightly different working with circa having been in the nhs the vast majority of our workforces were at the front line still are at the front line and, and they've not been impacted by the the kind of the hybrid changes that many uh, of us uh, in corporate roles have um but i think that's um that's something that has been really important to uh, to factor in yeah with the um with the whole conversation around um education and awareness and we touched on sort of champions there and yeah is there anything else that you've tried or anything else that you've seen to have impact when it comes to getting employees to understand it differently and, and start that conversation in the first place yeah so i think the kind of everything starts with uh, creating the permission having that psychological safety and there's some really basic things so which we've already touched on which we we can um, start to do to encourage that and then from there i think it's it's really about bringing stories um to life and one of the examples that encourage people to have a look at we used quite a lot in the nhs was schwartz rounds so i don't know if you've come across those before but effectively a forum for talking about and, and sharing examples of the um, the, the psychological and the, the social impact of the work that we do. And those would be themed around particular titles, such as a patient I'll never forget or um, something like that. And the key thing with those is that they weren't problem-solving forums. They were just an opportunity to, to share and to reflect and ultimately normalise a lot of the difficult things that we, uh, we might experience at work. Um, and one of the, the key lessons when whether it be Schwartz or whether it be kind of broader forums. I know a lot of companies use like fireside chats and, and similar kind of titles for, 
for those sessions is that it's not just about work. And I think this is one of the areas which, again, we'll hopefully see a, a change around off the back of the pandemic is that all of our lives outside of work have a massive impact on us at work. And there's that kind of boundary there around, well, you're not allowed to talk about it. I don't know, we 100% should be that. Bring your whole self to, to work. If we can create forums for that, then share those stories that creates a deep level of understanding of, of empathy and of compassion. And those are all the, the good ingredients that we need for high-performing workplace cultures. Um, so that kind of bottom-up approach to it um, through the sharing of stories in, in different, uh, different forums uh, can then be a, a massive enabler, I think. I really like that. I really like, I wrote it down because, um, you know, we're talking about vulnerability there. And when you're talking about vulnerability in the workplace, one of the key things that I always focus on is I feel there's a misconception around vulnerability in the workplace that being vulnerable in the workplace as a leader or as or not a leader is you have to cry your eyes out and you have to barrel to every single employee. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's a massive misconception. And And what I tend to try and do when I'm talking about vulnerability is I tell people that I've been vulnerable here today. I've, I've shared a story of my dad. I've yep. shared a little bit about how I felt after that moment. I've shared things with you that's put me in a vulnerable stage, right? And that vulnerability has then led you in the session to come with stuff that you've been through because it creates that trust. But I also then really sort of make a point of saying, but I'm not telling you everything. Like yeah, There yeah. is so much stuff that I'm not willing to tell complete strangers about my life, right? That's <laughs> safe for me. That's safe for my therapist. That's safe for my wife. Like they're the only people that maybe I'll tell. Um, and, and then that's what I mean by vulnerability in the workplace. Like you have to feel comfortable to share what you're feeling comfortable to share. Now, what I really like about those examples is you're giving them the prompts of what they should be sharing. Because if I say to you, someone, well, just go and share something you've been through that you're comfortable sharing, they can't necessarily think of what it is. But if you use an example of like a prompt or, or something like you've just shared there, you, you, you under, you've had a personal experience, you relate it to what you've used there in that sort of forum. And now you're having those really open conversations. I really like that. I think that's a, a, a free thing that anyone can use when it comes to mental health as well. Yeah. And it, it's such a, you know, obviously you can wrap some, uh, some real kind of process such as the, the Schwartz rounds example of it, but you can also just have that conversation in, in team meetings and mm. you can do it um, over, I know it's like Samaritans yesterday were promoting Brew Monday of just having a cup of tea with someone which, idea using those little titles as as a way of getting that level deeper than than you otherwise would and uh, Brene Brown's the the queen of vulnerability isn't she she um she is um is definitely the person to listen to on this topic and um I can't remember her exact definition but it's kind of vulnerability without boundaries is just kind of oversharing and, and over disclosing so you need to have those boundaries there you need to have that framework around it to to keep it safe because mm we want to keep everyone safe through all of this. That's the point of it. Um, and we don't want and those kind of sharing of stories to be for those people to feel like they're being used in the, the pursuit of kind of broader wellbeing benefits for the organization. Uh, we have to start with, with modeling that safety for everyone. That's a really important point as well, that psychological safety part of it, because, you know, whenever I do my talk, I always give like a trigger warning and, and yeah. remind people that, I'm about to talk about a personal experience and I do it in a safe way. I don't talk about methods or anything like that, but equally knowing that someone's on their day-to-day -day job and they're about to hear a guy talk about losing his dad to suicide and the impact that that had on him. The session of course then goes into the practical stuff, but I think you really need that vulnerability piece at the beginning and that psychological safety part of it is really important because normally, as you've said, a lot of people then might share their story and there's no boundaries to that sharing of a story. And then that can create 
more of a, I guess, I wouldn't say a negative impact, but it can have a neg- negative impact on some people. And then I think that's why companies are then cautious of doing this stuff. Yeah. Because it's that old cliche saying that I've had of you're not going to open up a can of worms, are you? And you come into the organization. So how do you wrap that psychological safety around a lot of this? Yeah, so there's there's kind of two ways. There's the formal way of making sure that there are rules of engagement for when we are having these conversations. Um, and Schwartz, other topics like that have um, have got great sets of, uh, of examples there. The other place that I take this to is just to simplify and strip it right back. And I think in this age of kind of mental health first aiders and, and all of that kind of stuff, that we think that we need to have a badge to be able to talk about this. Whereas actually all we're doing is sitting down as two or more human beings and having a natter about how we're feeling. Mm. And we don't need a qualification for that. We've all got the, the capability for it. And then there's some, some great parallels with the, the kind of the world of, of ED&I where there's been um, some great uh, new conversations starting off the back of that. And the way as now when I'm engaging in those saying, look, I'm going to be clunky here. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to get my language wrong, but if that's okay, let's let's have a go at this and let's just um, let's just kind of fumble our, our way through because we're we're approaching it with the right intent. I think that works for for the mental health context too. Of yeah, we need to wrap our trigger warnings all the rest of it around it and keep it safe. But we don't have to feel so pressured by saying the right thing that it means that we don't have those conversations at all. We can all just go, "Hey, don't mate, I've not seen you in a little while and you're looking a bit tired. Everything all right? Do you want a brew? Do you want a catch up? Like, that's all it needs to be." And, and we can really strip this back and, and take it to that simple place, I think. Yeah, it's great. It's really, really good. It's like, yeah, I, I, yeah. So you don't have to be a qualified therapist to ask someone how they are. Like, that's the way I always see it. And equally, you know, when you're looking at, I think the biggest misconception when you're having those conversations is that you have to be, you have to be the fixer. And, yeah. you know, I did that with my dad and I talk about this a lot. I tried to solve it. I, I tried to support him through solutions, not support him through love and compassion. Yeah, and, yeah. and when I found myself in that place at 21, 22 years old, I quickly realized I don't want anyone's solution. I just want their ears. I just want their ears to listen to me and then to say, I'm not an expert in this poll, but go and see this person. Like They might be able to help you. And it's that cliche saying of, you know, you wouldn't operate on someone's broken leg. That is not your skill set. But yeah. we feel like it's our responsibility to deal with the mental illness or the psychological need that a colleague has. You know, that's it's not our responsibility, as you said. So I think that fear of I have to fix this person, I might say the wrong thing, I don't want to make it worse, means that I don't even ask Jamie how he is today over a cup of tea. Right? It's like because yeah, I'm fearful of all of this stuff. Yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head with that. I think that's so true. The, the example I often use is imagine you've had a, a really difficult day at work and you come home and your other half goes, how was your day? And you rattle off uh, all the various things that have gone wrong and say, okay, well, why didn't you just do this? Or why didn't you just do that? Or here's the phone line number for someone or here's a, a web page, go to that. It's not going to work for us, is it? We're just going to stomp off upstairs and in, uh, in a grump. Um, instead, if they just said, okay, well, tell me about it. Like, what was that like? Then we feel seen, we feel heard, we feel understood. And as you rightly say, that's that's all we're looking for. We're not looking for fixes or, or solutions. And that anxiety, that tension comes from, from us. If we're that champion, if we're that manager sat opposite someone who, who is clearly struggling, they're not looking for that. It's us that's looking for that to try and make us feel better because we can't uh, necessarily um, wave the magic wand for them. So being mindful of that and knowing that, okay, well, 
this is about me, make it about them. What do they need? They just need that person to, to put that kind of metaphorical arm around the shoulder and, and, and sit with them through whatever that difficult thing is. And we're all adults in this, aren't we? Like we've all got responsibility for our, ourselves. And yes, some, in some cases, mental health can make that, make that harder. Um, but for the most part, if we need to access something, we will go and access it. It will just need to be kind of on our terms and in, in our time. And, and that process can be enabled by someone sat alongside you being uh, empathetic and compassionate. Yeah, it's very true. Like, as you say, I learned that about the challenges I had sort of trying to deal with, you know, my dad in the way that yeah. I, I, all of those mistakes that I made come from a place of love, right? Because you want to, you want to like take it away from him and, and not let him deal with it anymore. And it's always funny, you know, I always give advice about support them through compassion, don't support them through solutions. And then as a dad of, of two and as a husband, when my wife's telling me everything she's, she's got going on, I'm like, well, you, you should do this. You should do that. Yeah. And, and even with my kids, it's like, well, no, I want to provide, I want to tell them what to do, but it's, it's such, it's such important advice because, you know, there's so many moments where, you know, people will tell me what, what they've been, what they've got going on. And I just want to jump in. I want to tell them what to do, but that is purely for my own need because I feel vulnerable in that situation and I want to shut it down. So I think people understanding that and just to sit with them and give them that space is far more beneficial than giving them like the solution or the right answer. 100%. 100%. I think those, um, yeah, brilliant uh, example. And I think the those kind of open coaching questions, the place that I tend to start with is what would be most useful for you right now? Mm-hmm. And that's then your kind of your way. And that person might turn around and say, give me the number for so-and-so that I can go and speak to or give me the access to this service, the likelihood is they'll say, just let me run for a little bit. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, um, yeah, that's, that's great advice. We've spoken a lot about mental health and obviously with your role, I'm sure there's a lot of physical health and there's a lot of other yeah. areas as well. I mean, in terms of like the balance between physical and, and mental and well-being and performance, you know, how much do you focus on each or do you see them as quite holistic and, and, co- and in combination? Like, do you focus a lot on the physical side as well as the mental? Yeah. So our model that we use, um, using Circa has kind of six pillars. So they're, they're what you'd expect um, to see in there kind of with community and social financial career in there alongside um, physical and mental and all of those overlay and interact and this is one area where I think I think mental health and the work around that still has has room to to learn and to grow as well. And that there's a a lot of when we talk about mental health, we're actually talking about stress and mental health conditions and stress are whilst they share many of the same characteristics. There's there's different things going on. If you've got a, a mental health condition, then that's a there's a, a biological route to that, um, whether through the the situations that you're in or or whether through um, being dealt an, an unlucky hand with it. Whereas you can, and with those, you can change the environment around you, but it's still going to be hard work to prove that. Whereas in many cases, the symptoms are exactly that. They're symptoms of, a, of an environment, of a situation. And if we can change that environment, we can change that situation and we can reduce those, those symptoms down. And I don't think we necessarily got the kind of the nuance around that split from a, a workplace wellbeing perspective more broadly. And that's an area I'm, I'm really interested in. And the way that I frame it to people is if you think about, Kind of the the stresses that you experience in the workplace, like how many of us have had formal kind of training or have got qualifications in order to to deal with that? Like 
everyone should have their hand in the air. Since we started going to school at four years old, we've been preparing for being in the workplace effectively, haven't we? Whereas if then say, well, how many of you have had training or, or got qualifications around how to manage your finances, how to manage your relationship, how to care for your parents, some things, it's not going to be many hands up. We're not prepared for those aspects of life in the same way. And yeah, if you think about the impact they have for us. So really interested in, in looking at, okay, well, how do we better support our people outside of work as well? And whether that be in, in their relationships, in their finances, in their, their physical health too. Um, and then looking at this and layering that kind of public health view. So we know that the areas that you live, the upbringing you've had will dictate different things about your, your health, your well-being, your performance. So we need to build that nuance into the, the recipe as well. And obviously there's a lot of complexity in there and it's, it's easier said than done. And we've got much more control of those workplace factors than we have of the, the stuff that impacts people outside of it. But I think without paying some attention to that and without offering some some assistance, some education, some services to, to support that, we're missing a, a big piece of the puzzle with it. Yeah, I think that's the key word, isn't it? Assistance. It's not, you know, in a way, you, your responsibility as an employer to, to do that, but offering them assistance and guidance can really help. And I think I really like what you said about stress in a way, because, you know, when you're looking at resilience and the terminology around resilience, what, in my opinion, all it is, is, you're always going to have pressure. You're always going to have challenges. That's life, right? You know, I've gone out, I'm going to have many more challenges that, that, that happen to me and it's going to happen to everyone, but it's me being equipped with the tools and the resilience and the inner strength to be able to deal with that pressure differently. And I think that real divide between mental health conditions or mental illness and stress, mental health, still is very blurred a lot of people still see them as the same thing and i think when you're then talking about as you say stress as an example there's a lot more links to as you say exercise in the environment and everything else that can can play a big part in how employees can thrive a bit more i guess definitely definitely and and then that feeds into the the conversation we've had previously around kind of opening the box on some of that and an example of a, an initiative, um, which by all means people feel free to, to steal and run with, was um, that I ran in, in the NHS was I Wish My Manager Knew, which it was a, a campaign that aimed to shed a light on some of those things that might be going on for people. So that person that is arriving 15 minutes late every morning, it'd be really easy to go down the kind of, well, I need to performance manage them route because they're clearly they're not doing what they need to be doing. Whereas actually opening that box and having that I Wish My Manager Knew conversation was highlighting things like, that they needed to go and visit their dad who lived 10 miles away to give him his medication because he wouldn't take it from, from the, the nurses, he'd only take it from them, or that they had an abusive partner who was uh, impacting their, their ability to get to work. All of this other messy human stuff that sits behind the scenes, which again, we can't necessarily fix, but we can be compassionate and we can support and we can guide and we can signpost. And, and that's going to dramatically impact that person's um, well-being at work as well as um, improving their their life and their their odds outside of work. Was that anonymous? Uh, say that again, sorry. Was that anonymous? Like when they wrote what they wished uh, they so the, We gave people the option to do both. So you could either have that conversation as part of your uh, kind of regular one-to-ones and we gave people the a really simple kind of wellness action plan style template to be able to do that. But then we also gave a load of signposting material for different things that we'd seen. And we, we'd done it off the back of a, a health needs assessment, um, which identified some percentages. So kind of 40%, 47% of the respondents um, said that 
caring responsibilities outside of work impacted their well-being at work. So that was straight away kind of creating that permission by sharing that stat and then saying, well, if this is you, here's 10 different things that might be helpful for you. Um, and some of that signposting, some of that kind of internal support, counselling, et cetera, et cetera. So some people preferred to go down that anonymous route. Other people where those, those managed relationships were positive felt mm. the, um, the ability to have that conversation. I really like that. I really like that. Um, amazing stuff. I could I could chat about this. <laughs> Likewise. Hours and hours and hours with you, I'm sure. Um, but I want to just touch on one of the things in terms of performance yep. management and your background, because by the sounds of it, if you've got like a sporting background, I think there's a real real change in in how players and sports people are being managed currently. Yes. So you look at like Gareth Southgate and, you know, Pippa Grange in, in England and how it's been a real focus on empathy and, and leading in that sense. And there was a clip that I saw from John Terry when he was at Aston Villa with Dean Clark, the manager at the time. And John Terry was saying how he brought a player in the office and he just said, why are you, why are you training badly? You know, why, why are you not putting the effort in? And, and this guy was just, didn't say a word, walked out and, and Dean Clark, the manager at the time, pulled John Terry aside and said, did you ask, ask him, is he all right? Has he got anything going on? And John Terry, obviously, from that day and age where you just got abused by managers if you weren't playing well, you should just be training harder. Yeah. Pulled him aside later on or that next day and said, "Have you got? Is everything all right? You got anything going on?" And he apparently hadn't seen his wife and kids for a couple of weeks because of the pandemic and had this yeah. going on. And and John Terry said immediately he saw, "Wow, like there's this different approach to management." And he said the next day I'm training, this guy was unreal, like best best he's been for a long time. And and that I, when I listen to stuff like that, it really translates into the workplace. Now, in your experience, have you seen that? a lot of managers have potentially become managers because they've been there for a long time or, you know, they're good at their job, but they haven't had that almost training. And is that a big part of your strategy to make sure that managers know the importance of empathy and compassion when it comes to leading? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of interesting in place with this because I, um, whilst I, I still play and compete, I also coach. Um, so I coach the side that I, I play in. And obviously when I appear on things like this and talk about the, the good stuff that we've been talking about, it, it would uh, it kind of creates the need to make sure that I'm um, I'm doing what I uh, say and uh, and not just preaching. So um, it's definitely something as as I've gone through my kind of playing career, have seen some of the the old school management and have been in changing rooms when the Gatorade tub gets chucked across uh, the room. You kind of held up on video review, called every name under the sun, and and all of that um, fun stuff, which we'll we'll put in the category of um, of character building. Um, and certainly in those kind of professional environments. Ultimately, it is a bit of a it is a bit of a meat grinder. There's a, a survivorship bias with those people that end up on on the TV at, at the top at the end of it because there's been a huge amount of numbers of people pumped in and plenty of people who've been broken by it and who don't have positive experiences who who don't make that that next jump. Thankfully, we're now starting to see, as you've referenced there, lots more examples of a, a more modern and more positive um, and sensitive approach to this, which is is great. And certainly, kind of the the coaching that I do in uh, sporting environment, we offer uh, kind of mental health apps and counselling to um, a lot of the the players because, uh, as young lads in our case, we've um, uh, we've seen all kinds of the the challenges that we we read about in the media play play through for them, um, and it's it's not easy um, balancing those those different commitments at that stage of life. So it's really important that we we make sure that that's factored in. I think there is a, a need to have that. Um, kind of for lack of a better phrase kind of carrot and stick approach I've heard a, a Dave 
Brailsford podcast recently where he was talking about this from his work with the cyclists as well of we need to do, create the environment and, and give all the opportunities for someone to thrive. But at the same time, there still has to be personal responsibility and ownership and consequences of, of not meeting that standard. Um, that was something that in the early years of my uh, career working in HR departments and the like, it took me a while to, to get my head around because I wanted to save, save everyone and everyone needs to be, to be given those opportunities to, um, um, uh, throughout. But in some cases, situations won't be right for people and there needs to be that sensitive conversation about, okay, well, is there another opportunity which would, would suit you better? Is this environment, is this role, whatever the context might be, is that the best fit? And I think that's, a, again, a nuanced and difficult position, but giving people that the opportunity, all the good stuff we've talked about so far, but at the same time having that backbone of, well, we still need to perform, we're still here to do a job and we're all taking a wage at the end of this. And if that isn't working, then maybe this isn't the right one or, or maybe this isn't the right time and there's other things that we can do. And then in those circumstances, again, we, we sensitively support people to, to make that next step. And I've known numerous examples in career so far of people who, who have moved on from whatever setting I was working in and then got in touch and said, you know what, best move I made. I'm now thriving, doing something different. Um, great in that, in that case. Yeah, it's like that challenge that you need. It's like um, yeah. that good pressure and bad pressure, you know, the, the defining of what makes good pressure. And and I feel like when you don't when you don't have that good pressure, you're not motivated, you're not inspired, you're not you're not driven to do more. And like you say, I think it can either it can swing too far the opposite way. And and again, you know, I might I might get potentially criticized for this if someone might hear it, but you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that we need to allow people to know that they shouldn't feel shame for struggling with their mental health. Yeah. But equally sitting in that state of not being okay for a very long time is also not the answer. You yeah. know, you have to find a way or a tool or some some drive from somewhere to to get going, right? And And to try your best to deal with it. Because, you know, the mistake I made when I was really struggling is is not dealing with it, not talking about it and and just letting it build up and build up and build up best decision i made was the day i went to therapy right and the day that i started to take ownership of it and started to try and get better and i think that comes back to that example that you've just shared i think a lot of organizations might swing one way when it comes to you know letting everyone um know it's okay without having that deadline and without having those targets that are important in the business as well with that with that being said jim i've got two questions two personal questions um First one is talking about like ownership and taking control of our mental health. What do you do for your own mental health? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm quite a busy boy, so I, I balance a lot of different things. Obviously, I've got the the day job and then uh, playing and coaching uh, rugby in the background, which obviously takes a, a lot of time. And then um, I think that that switching between those different hats, I think, is really helpful. So um, the more hats that you wear, the more opportunities you've got for for a good day. So if I have a difficult day at work, then I can take that hat off and put on the, the rugby hat. I can go to the gym. I can take the dog out for a walk, whatever those um, those different opportunities are, those different worlds to, to step into and escape problems and challenges in, in one of the others. So I think that's a, an important aspect of it. Um, I've done a lot of work personally over the years. Um, one of the advantages of, um, of running and managing counselling service and the like is that you've got access to, to counsellors and therapists uh, very easily. So I've definitely taken advantage of that. And the real aim of that is kind of self-awareness and making sure I know 
what good and bad looks like for me and when I'm getting that feedback, what I can then do, what are my strategies to, to pivot and change things and nip things in the bud before anything gets gets harder. Um, and often those are really simple things. So take the dog out for the walk, go and do some exercise, go and speak to someone, all of those really basic, really non-sexy, really um, uh, kind of obvious things. It's just about doing them. Um, and then also in the in the background, I try and keep a, kind of a practice of, of learning, of growth. I love, as you can tell on this, talking about this area and discovering discovering more. Um, and one of the, the most helpful things I found is kind of reading like Stoic philosophy and, and having those frameworks for um, thinking through the, the challenges that we might experience day to day. So having that in the background is, uh, has proved really helpful. And that comes on to the last question really nicely. So what's the, what's something you've read or a podcast or something that you've seen recently that has really changed your approach or your way of thinking? I'm sure there's lots that you could be read off. It doesn't have to be one. You've got a couple. Them. <laughs> yeah, I could, uh, I could give book recommendations forevermore. But, um, so the, um, the kind of the place, that, uh, have we got time for a longer waffly answer on this? Or, uh, of course, you need of course. To- this, this, is a, this is a selfish question. This is just for me yeah, to make notes. So one of the um, one of those kind of uh, big change moments in my career was um, I'd been uh, was at the start of my kind of professional rugby career. Um, things had been going well, been a bit of a bolter, and, and got into the team when wasn't expected to, uh, and enjoyed a kind of successful start to a season, and then went and, and played this game where literally everything went wrong, and I had an absolute howler. Coach took the Gatorade, all of that fun stuff. And I was sat on the bus on the way back from that, knowing that I'm not going to be in the team for a while here. And, and this is kind of all my dreams were were being um, sort of dissolved in front of me. And it just so happened that the book, being a, a geek and a bit of a nose that I'd brought to read on the way back was um, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb, uh, which was presenting this idea of it's not just about being tough and it's not just about getting through difficult things. It's about leaning into them and using those things to accelerate your growth and your development and to make them useful. And that started a, a real process in my own kind of personal resilience. And then what I went on to, to kind of bring into my day-to-day work. So off the back of that, I discovered the, the two books I recommend to everyone. So um, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, um, absolute classic. I'm sure most people listening to the, this podcast will have, uh, will have heard that if you've not read it yet, this is your prompt to. Uh, and then The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, which is that kind of Stoke philosophy um, grounding and, again, a really useful practical framework for, for dealing with the challenges of, of day-to-day life in, the, in our, our modern world. So, yeah, those would be the two that I'd, um, I'd really sign most people towards. Yeah, really, really, really good books. The Daily Stoic as well by, I think that's Ryan Holiday as well. That's a really good Yes, yeah, yeah. I am using the journal for that at the minute. So that's been one of my uh, New Year's resolutions to dust that off and, uh, and get started with the journaling practice again. That's cool. And then any 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 podcasts that you you listen to? Well, obviously all of yours. Um, I'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll give you the plug for that. Like, subscribe, all the rest of it. Um, so I think I'll pay, I'll pay you later. I'll pay you later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, there's uh, there's so many nowadays, isn't there? Which uh, uh, is is brilliant. So ones that I recently been listening to. So Stephen Bartlett um, is obviously mm. in the news at the minute. Um, maybe avoid his uh, his Molly Mayer episode off the back <laughs> of some of that. But um, I think he's a uh, recent one with Jimmy Carr was really enlightening. Yeah. Someone that you, you see in the media and you, you have one view of, um, but digging in behind the, the scenes of that, uh, really, really interesting. Uh, and then another recent one, which is a, a bit of an epic, but again, would recommend people go to is um, Joe Rogan's interview with Naval. Um, so much wisdom in, in terms of navigating through um, 
uh, an interesting future that we've all all got with the the changes that are going on in the world. Some really good practical ways of thinking through some of that within there. So yeah, we'll definitely check those two out. That's cool. Really, really cool. Jamie, um, really appreciate your time. As I say, we, we could have carried on talking for ages, but um, if anyone wants to sort of connect with you or reach out, what's the best place? Uh, so LinkedIn or on um, Twitter is the uh, probably the other best place, which is just at Broadus13. So uh, yeah, really keen to get any feedback on what we've talked about today. Happy to be challenged on uh, on the stuff that we've uh, we've been nattering about too. And uh, obviously any book or podcast recommendations, I am, uh, I am all this. Amazing. Thank you again, Jamie. Appreciate you joining us today. And um, we'll link up to all of that in the show notes as well. Appreciate it. Thanks ever so much, mate. Thanks ever so much, mate. Thanks ever so much, mate. Thanks ever so much, mate.